Hey guys, welcome back to the Crescendo Go-To-Market podcast. And today we have Justin, the founder of Safari, and he is one of the best community growth leaders I've seen. He's pioneering this new concept of community-led growth. Justin, do you want to give us a quick introduction to yourself and what you do in the Web3 space? Um, hey everyone, I'm Justin, co-founder of Safari. Uh, we founded the leading Web3 growth community and we're building a privacy-centric alternative to Google Analytics and Web3. Uh, my background is in two-sided labor marketplaces uh, doing B2C growth. Um, I'm happy to elaborate more wherever you want to dive in. Yeah, I would love to learn more about you know what we were doing prior to Web3 and how did you get into marketing in general, right? I know you were quite involved in product and ops. Um, how did you get into the marketing world? What did that journey look like? Yeah, so my, the first company that I worked for, I was I was the first hire at an early stage Y Combinator startup. Um, that startup built a peer-to-peer -peer mock interview tool for software engineers to practice interviewing. So think about it as like, you go to the platform, I interview you, you interview me, we provide each other feedback at the end. And the secret sauce of that business was really community. Uh, they built this great community of people who are helping each other practice for interviews and then ultimately get a job. Um, and so that was one aspect of, of something I was doing there. As their first hire, I, I like to say that I was their everything else guy. I joined a team of three engineering founders. So I was doing both B2B, uh, B2B marketing, B2B sales, uh, B2C community, uh, and then also content in between. Um, and so that was one experience that I had. And the second one was at a B2C labor marketplace uh, called Manolo, which you can think about as Uber for warehouse workers. Um, and there I was leading a programmatic advertising strategy. So doing a lot more attribution and ad tech, uh, which is when I learned about uh, that whole space ended up building up the company's first experimentation platform and program. Uh, so I've really had a lot of different types of growth experience uh, throughout my early career before I dove into Web3. Got it. And with Vin Vinolo, that was a much larger company. I think it was like Series D or something? Yeah. When I joined them, um, they just raised a Series C uh, from Bain. Um, so there are about 100 people. Uh, I joined them around then, and then I left two and a half years later, they're around 400 people, and it closed to Series D. So, um, with your, so with, uh, with the first company you worked at, which was your, I guess, the interviewing uh, software, right? So you're essentially able to interview each other, provide each other feedback. Um, what was the B2B play there, and what was the B2C play? Yeah, so the... We basically started with this mock interview tool. So it was purely B2C, helping software developers help each other practice interviews. And then we built a technical hiring marketplace on top of it. So the B2B side was people who are looking to hire software engineers. And the B2C side was candidates who are looking for a new job. Interesting. And then that, I guess that makes sense how you got into the labor marketplace for essentially warehouse workers as well because it's it's kind of similar you're yeah. you're solving the recruiting slash you know hiring problem yeah the first time I, the first one was all for full-time though they're hiring software engineers full-time and the uh, second one was uh, very on demand so a warehouse worker might work one warehouse one day and then a different job a different day at a different place interesting interesting yeah, so that's uh, that's fascinating because it's that like two-sided marketplace aspect of it definitely makes marketing and community a lot more difficult, right? Because you're not just trying to 
build um, kind of like the supply, you're also trying to build a demand at the same side, uh, same time, and you kind of have to do them at the same t- time as well. But I guess the advantage you had at the first company is you basically, the community was interviewing each other and helping each other. So you don't really even need employers. You didn't even need like people coming in to hire them because they're already were there for a reason. You just found a way to basically uh, take those people that were already there and then find a way to essentially bring in these employers to hire those people. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah. And it sort of was, that was definitely the secret sauce is that we had these people practicing interviews. And so there are a couple of things that happened there. One, we had this community of people who were organically helping each other and, you know, providing each other value in a positive way. So people were coming onto our platform and being like, wow, I met great new people. I got this service that was free um, to meet new people, help me get my next job. And so that made them know a little bit more loyal to our platform and to searching mm-hmm. jobs on our platform rather than like the, the classic mercenary just just like applying to jobs on all, all sorts of sites. Uh, so I think that was one very helpful aspect to it for us. And the second is that we actually knew how people were going to perform. Uh, that's the other piece that uh, sort of came to us along the way, right, is that they're practicing interviews on our platform, then we know how they're going to do in an interview. Uh, and so we actually have higher sense of who's qualified, who's going to get hired, who's not, based off of this proprietary data that you wouldn't have had uh, if you were any other type of recruitment tool. Uh, we actually knew how they were going to perform in an, a real interview because we had interview data uh, from them doing their practice tests um, with somebody live, right? So we knew how the first technical interview they did at a company was likely going to go. Um, can you tell us about how you got into Web3 and how you decided to start building Safari, what it is, and we'll go from there. Yeah, so my co-founder and I dove into Web3 at the end of 2021. And we were immediately fascinated by the potential for new business models uh, and freedom from the very powerful intermediaries of our time. Um, but as I as we expl- explored the space, I was also really dumbfounded by the insane growth that was happening uh, from these companies in the peak of the bull market. Just like the notion that you know you could have an airdrop for a completely new company, and then like all of a sudden they're driving like such high revenue numbers and such like high user growth was like absolutely insane to me um, as a growth person. Um, But I was also confused that nobody was really talking about that either. Like nobody was really talking about growth or marketing or the strategies that were were being deployed behind some of these very interesting Web3 native tactics. And so for me, Safari was, you know, we built Safari as a community basically for like me, right? As I was like, I want a place where I can talk to other growth people about their growth strategies, their challenges, what does this all mean? What is the impact of these Web3 native strategies on the future of growth? Uh, so Safari really began from there, which was a, a small batch of 40 of us talking about what is the future of Web3 growth and how does that can affect Web2 growth? Um, and then we, we slowly grew from there, uh, but we've intentionally kept the community quite small, uh, really only accepting the best of the best because we do very high touch activities with them as i was sort of alluding to earlier um and along the way we we raised around um and started building our platform which is now live uh, for marketing attribution awesome and what what exactly um could you go a bit more in depth into the safari the platform right yeah so safari the platform safari is a, a marketing attribution platform for that helps web3 teams 
analyze the analyze the marketing CAC, channel ROI, and customer LTV. You can really think about us like a Google Analytics for Web3 for helping companies track channel performance. So that might be understanding where your users come from in terms of the campaigns, uh, the marketing channels, their geography, and other types of interesting uh, aligned data around performance. Um, but it's also con tracking conversion rates across channels, understanding how your funnel works from uh, those campaigns to visitors, to wallet sign-ins, to custom events on-chain and off-chain that you care about. Um, and finally, it's the user journey, which is really understanding how users are nav navigating across the website and you know, where they're dropping off so that you can improve your funnel. Got it. So it's, it's more than uh, just an ad. Got it. It's more than an attribution platform. It's actually kind of a you know marketing analytics platform um, that really allows yeah, you to have so a much deeper understanding. Like, like basically like attribution plus mixed panel. Got it. Got it. What, what do you think of the, the Google Analytics for Web3 comparison or analogy? Do you think that's accurate or? Yeah, I, I definitely think that that's accurate. I think that mm -hmm. the one thing that we're trying to go more for is not just top, not just solely top of funnel, uh, but being able to understand a little bit deeper into your funnel and connecting that with actually like revenue data downstream. Um, mm -hmm. I think that Google Analytics, but also more so the Web2 attribution players, they didn't spend a lot of time focusing on the visualization of data. They mostly accepted that that data would get piped into, you know, your own in-house BI tool. Um, but we are spending a lot of time really trying to make our dashboards attractive um, and something that people would just use uh, as is, if that makes sense, rather than expecting that that data is going to go elsewhere. Yeah, that's the one thing I noticed about Safari from the, uh, you know, basically the screenshots and mockups you showed me were the UI and the UX is significantly um, better than many other tools, even in Web2. And I, I think that's pretty important for where the space is at right now, because most people don't have a full-time analytics person in-house to go and you know create clean dashboards, right? It's uh, the more user-friendly you make it, I think the more of an edge there is. Yeah, and I think we're at a time too where people are looking for simplicity as well. A lot of the Web2 analytics platforms got, in my opinion, overly complicated and uh, was analyzing a lot of data that didn't really matter that much. And so we really focused on both like the user experience from uh, making beautiful dashboards that, um, making beautiful dashboards to visualize your data, but also that are easy to understand and tracking the metrics that really matter uh, rather than trying to track everything and anything. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And with this platform, right, because I know, so you first built a community, um, you have this really interesting mechanism of batches. Did you start out with having people come in different batches or did, you, did it start out as a community and then you decided, hey, we're going to create this batching system? Um, how, how did that, or like the community originally grow? And then, um, yeah, basically, how did that evolve? Yeah, so we actually did batches since the beginning. And I think that the thing that was different about Safari when we first started was most, almost all communities were open by default and we wanted Safari to be a closed community. We were looking at a lot of communities that were open. There were like 10,000 people, 20,000 people. And that just didn't really seem like the community experience that we were expecting. Um, and so we really focused on making it a small group of people, but a really great experience for a small group of people. Um, and so if you're gonna have a small, 
you're going to have a closed community by default, uh, then you have to think about, you know, what is the mechanism in which people apply and is it, do you accept them on a rolling basis into your community or do you, you know, do a special experience for people all together in one? Um, and yeah, for us, we, we always do the batches. Um, and I think that that is something that I've become more and more bullish on. Um, as we've done now six different batches, I think that batches really help with both uh, FOMO um, and hype to get into a batch. Uh, so helping with the top of funnel, but also uh, the great onboarding really happens uh, within a batch if every single person joins your community at the same time with the same expectations and the same moment. Uh, so I think batches, there are a number of different things that are really important for why batching can set up communities for success. Yeah, I, I think the batching aspect is brilliant. So there were a couple of things that I really loved about it. The num the one thing being is this like guided onboarding where every, you know, you had the first onboarding call, then you had this, you know, you have these individual weekly calls where uh, you go into different areas of Web3 marketing and uh, you invite different people from the community to speak. So I really enjoyed that where it's, it's kind of this guided experience. And then the second piece, which I really appreciated is the individual matchmaking, uh, which it must, that must have taken a lot of work where you guys actually matched members with each other. That was pretty mind blowing to me. And yeah, I'm curious how much work did that take and how did you come up with that idea? Um, yeah, it's, I would love to say that it doesn't take a lot of time, but it takes an insane amount of time. Um, there are two parts of the matching, right? There's the, uh, the onboarding call. So uh, you know this, but obviously for those who are listening, uh, every single person that joins a Safari batch has an onboarding call with me or my co-founder. Uh, so that means that we, when we have a batch of 80, we meet 80 different people one-on-one -on -one for a 30-minute call. So that alone is 40 hours of time. Um, and we use those calls to basically figure out where this, where each person is in their personal growth journey, growth career in this current moment, um, and use that information to figure out who would be the most important and most valuable person that we could introduce them to in this moment in time. Um, and so it's both the upfront of having 40 hours where the calls with 80 different people, and then after that, it's thinking about who would be the most natural, best fit for this person from that same group of 80, um, and then building trust in the match. Um, so I think that's a part that we've gotten much better at over time is when you match two people, how do you uh, inspire them to understand that this is going to be a match that's worth their time and to trust the match. Um, so it definitely takes a lot of time and it's something that we've gotten a lot better at. I think that this, this batch matchmaking process had one of the highest conversion rates so far of like you get introduced to actually like scheduling the setting up a call and doing the call. Um, of any batch before and it, it really comes from how we set up uh, the match uh, long before the matchmaking actually takes place. Yeah, I really appreciated that. And it's honestly, uh, I, I will say as, uh, as somebody who's in the latest batch, it's really worth checking out Safari, applying for the next batch. It's, uh, it's a great community. The level of discussion is very high. Uh, so overall, totally worth it to, you know, really try to get in. And that takes me to my next question, right? Because, you know, you guys built this incredible community and then basically um, you decided to start building tooling. And so how did that transition go from having a really strong community 
at, to deciding, okay, this is the actual um, actual tool we want to build or actual software we want to build that, you know, and then be able to kind of get community feedback for, for, for that. Yeah, we actually always were building tools under the hood. Uh, this might be news to some, um, but even since the, the second batch, um, we were building different tools. Uh, so back then, we were very passionate about one of the ethos for our listeners here is about this idea of collaborative growth. It's something that we very much embody within our community of getting people to exchange insights with each other in real time. We were very inspired by Dune and how interesting it is to be able to see dashboards that are public with on-chain data. But we also thought it was really limiting that it was only on-chain data and not off-chain data too, because so much of growth within Web3 still happens off-chain. Um, and so we, we had built this very interesting, basically like open mix panel, um, an open collaborative growth version of mix panel uh, where we had Safari members uh, connect their Discord data to our platform and then make it public uh, for everyone within the community to see and to comment on those different graphs as well. Because um, we really wanted to be able to not just talk about growth strategies, but also you know, analyze growth data together um, and see how they inform uh, different growth strategies. So that's been an interesting thing. We've always been building different, different products under the hood, but um, we fundraising helped us, you know, really take take our development to the next level. Um, and we're really proud of the, the platform that we've built over the last like five months. Awesome. And was there a process of, you know, kind of introducing uh, the product to the community and getting their take on it? Or how, how did the community kind of get involved with, uh, with the product ideation creation side of things? Yeah. So for batch two, when we did, when we did this like open mix panel, we actually onboarded people directly onto the platform. Um, and then they like had the community experience. We really intertwined the two. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's something that we've always been thinking about. What is the, what is the community? What is the product? Where's the overlap? I think at this point in time, we think about them a little bit more separately than we did before. Uh, today, the product is the platform where you could value and like you connect your data and you work with your team. And the community is our brands, our our customer acquisition funnel. It is our opportunity to meet uh, and build relationships with the best of the best growth leaders in the space, uh, but we leave it there, right? So um, people and many people from this current batch have integrated Safari, uh, but we don't push it. Um, and I think that that is very, very important for any community builder that also has a product to uh, realize and think about is that this is a very fine balance. And once you lose trust with your community, uh, then like your, your community is basically dead. Um, so we very much optimize towards the community experience uh, over the product uh, with the imagination that um, people will uh, find our product if they're interested. Um, and that's been a, a good bet so far and has happened organically for us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's uh, at that point, once they're in your community, it's like, you know, it's a no brainer to go check out the actual product itself because you're already getting so much value from the community. And uh, I do think that, yeah, it's, it's a pretty brilliant way to set it up. And I'm sure there's, you know, obviously I'm still going through this batch, but I'm sure there's definitely interesting ways where you can probably integrate the product in a way that doesn't come across as pushy, um, into, into the community as well. Like in terms of maybe even 
yeah, maybe just spitballing like public dashboards or something. Um, but again, that's, uh, that's just spitballing, but yeah, it's, it's super interesting. And I do agree hundred percent with the community trust has to be important. Um, and this is the first time I've seen, or like maybe I think there's two communities I can think of, uh, Safari and then WolfsDAO where I've seen this level of like dedication to keeping the community free of, um, essentially monetization free of like any kind of finance financialization. I think with web three, you have a lot of communities that are based on NFT gating or, you know, token gating where you can essentially buy your way in. And those communities I find are not as sticky as the ones where it's purely based on merit and there's no financial upside other than maybe the, the lessons you learn and the people you meet and the networking. So, uh, yeah, really r respect that approach. And I do think that's, that's an approach that's really needed in the space. Um, now one question I have for you is, uh, are there any other communities in the web three space that you think, um, also ha are like very close knit and have like a really positive vibe that you really respect in terms of community building? Yeah. I mean, what existed before safari was the jump community and i was really inspired by jeff who's the founder of jump um he had this very similar onboarding strategy um, they did it in a rolling basis not a batch basis but he would talk to every single person that onboarded into jump um, and that's i met him before as a result of that as i joined that community and i was really inspired by you know, what one might say is unscalable, uh, doing the unscalable things actually does build a lot of bonds between community members and also bonds and, and allegiance to the community itself. Uh, there would be no jump without Jeff. Um, I think that that is an important thing for a lot of community builders to realize as well. It's like your uh, community experience begins with whether you like the community builder or not. And then from there, yeah. hopefully you can find other ways to create value. And you're referring to Jump Capital or? Uh, no, there's a, a a community of marketers called Jump. Okay, interesting. J -U -M -P. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's cool. it's more so I'd say on the the brand marketing side. So mm -hmm. it really rose in 2021 with a lot of Web two marketers getting curious about launching Web three activations for their for bigger brands in the space. Um, and so for us, you know, Safari is more on the Web3 native growth leader side. Um, so we carved out our own niche. But uh, Jeff, at one point in time, said that he had spoken to like 700 plus uh, Jump members one-on-one -on -one to onboard them, which is absolutely crazy. I think that I'm still probably like 400 maybe in <laughs> um, for how many Safari members I've chatted with or onboarded in. Um, but yeah, so quite a feat. So I definitely respect that. Um, I think the other community that's really great is uh, Chain Forest. Uh, created a really great community. Uh, unfortunately, Chain Forest has uh, just shut down, I think like a month or so ago. Um, but that was another great community that I thought had a lot of uh, great people in it, high signal. Uh, they also did it on a rolling basis and so not batches. Um, right now, there are more text-based communities. I'm seeing a lot of communities pop up on Telegram. Uh, the mm -hmm. two that I like the most uh, right now are BD3 and Bard. I think both of them have a high-quality group of people. Each of them has like 100 to 300 people in them. 
Um, and that's just a, an interesting place to learn things. So I think the communities serve different functions at different times. And um, one of the things that I think about too, which maybe is a hot take is that I don't think communities are, are meant to be forever. I think that they serve a certain purpose in a certain moment in time. And we shouldn't think about it as a, as a failure if a community shuts down um, because it just might not be needed anymore. Um, and that's, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And moving on to Safari, the product, what do you feel uh, are kind of the differentiators as compared to some of the other tooling out there? Uh, and I know there's also a pretty interesting, unique element when it comes to how you guys treat privacy. So maybe you can touch on that as well. Yeah, I think that the, the two things would be that differentiate us are one, the privacy aspect and two campaigns. Uh, we're very focused on campaigns and how you measure campaigns. Um, and I think a, one of our differentiators is our close relationship with a number of these different marketing channels. Uh, Safari, we created this uh, database of all the Web3 growth tools and market maps of those growth tools. And um, a lot of people, for, for many people, it was the first time that they really understood what was going on in the greater Web3 growth space beyond them maybe competitors that they didn't know about or to be able to see and categorize uh, different companies in this like larger web through growth industry. And so that making those maps has given us a great opportunity to um, build very high quality relationships with all the other builders in the space. Um, and so that's one, one aspect that I think is a little different about us. And the other is this privacy space. Um, and the way that we think about privacy is that I think that marketers have really been presented with a false choice um, historically, Web 2 and Web 3. Either you promote privacy and you track nothing, uh, or you reject privacy and you track everything. And I think that that's a really false binary that's been put in front of um, marketers. And if nothing else, I think Web 3 presents an opportunity for us to think differently about that. Um, and so what we, when we think about these things, we think about it from the, the first uh, principles point of view of what is the uh, data that is actually needed um, from a mar for a marketing standpoint today and we're only going to track that um, if people ask us for other things we will evolve but we're not going to come in with the idea of like we're trying to track literally everything um, so we're coming trying to come at it from this fr first principles you tell us what you absolutely need to track and we will help you track that um, but we're not going to go out of our way to try and find other things that, you know, you might want to track in the future unless it's specifically asked of us. Um, mm. So I think that's like a difference of ethos. Um, and I really saw this a lot in my, you know, the other companies that I've worked for in the past who tracked like literally everything under the sun. Um, but like a lot of times that data wasn't useful, right? Like it was one of those things that like a new product manager gets hired and was like, let's go through all the data and they like find this thing they like they do a presentation on all this data that nobody's ever looked at before and then i was like cool yeah, that's interesting and then like no, nobody uses that data ever again right so there are like certain things i think particularly around like campaign data and user journey that are not like so demographic specific on people uh, that is very valuable but i think that a lot of the the demographic data that is being collected um which is, in my opinion, the more creepy parts of data. I think a lot of that is actually not as neat as people think it is. Hmm. And so we built a platform to reflect that, reflect that design choice. 
Interesting. And yeah, I mean, uh, I think more and more we're starting to see, you know, marketing analytics move towards, you know, like cohort based or just, you know, more anonymized data rather than knowing everything about every user, right? Like, I think that's just a trend we're seeing overall. Um, and figuring out how to do marketing in a manner that still respects privacy, um, but is still very effective. That's like a huge challenge that you, has to be solved, right? Yeah, and I think DeFi is the perfect space for us to experiment with those types of things. DeFi marketers are, are super interesting. Like they actually really don't care about who this person is, like as a person, you know? They wanna understand everything that they do on their website, how they like move across the user funnel, where people drop off, where they get confused, but like on the like the demographic level, they actually don't need to know that information. And maybe some of these things will break down when we get into like decentralized Web3 commerce that you need to know much more about like the actual demographics of people. But I think that there's, this is like a great new world for us to experiment with what it really means to collect less data and, and do effective marketing in this new world that, as you described. Yeah, I guess where I would say probably demographic data really comes into handy is when you're running like paid advertising campaigns and you're doing them at scale. Um, but then again, I think the solution to that and, uh, you know, this is, this is something where if you have, you don't necessarily need to know like your individual user down to like everything level, right? You can still have this like cohort of people or have this general kind of like anonymized or hashed data that the marketer doesn't need to understand like every single person, but as long as they have that and then the ad platforms can ingest that data, um, you can still be very effective. It's like, and that's the, the interesting thing about Web3 and decentralized systems is you could theoretically have like this data that is very, I guess, sensitive um, that if you have multiple systems like ad ad network, if you, you know, have like a kind of an analytics platform, you could theoretically have this data be used across multiple systems without anybody knowing anything about the one specific user, right? So it could be almost like encrypted in a way where even the ad network can't see it, like they can use it, but they, you know, somebody at the ad network can't go in and be like, okay, I want to figure out who these, uh, who this person is. I, I don't know if that makes sense or if I'm going completely up the but deep end it, 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 it totally makes sense. Um, and that's one, one aspect that we're also working on is um, our lead engineer has a PhD in different in uh, data privacy. Um, mm -hmm. And one of his like core focuses was this thing called differential privacy, which is basically that is how do you share a you know, data set with other people um, without them being able to join that data set with other things to figure out, you know, personal identifying uh, information on one user within that data set. Uh, so Got how it. do you add noise? How do you do other things to be able to like, yeah, share data sets, but in a, a privacy preserving way? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I definitely see where that's where things are going because you kind of, you want to preserve performance, but you also want to be able to preserve privacy. And I think there is a way to do both. Um, and you hit it on the nail there. And yeah, it sounds like you have the right lead engineer to build this. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's the, the unique thing is, that, you know, privacy for us is not just a buzzword. You know, we've really built it into the DNA of our team. 
and both of our engineers today have uh, privacy-focused backgrounds for, for engineering as well. So it's all. Okay, I'll wrap it up in that case. I think we uh, definitely went a lot more in depth in the little audio cuts to tell, but let, let's, uh, let's wrap it up. Um, okay, so moving on from Safari, um, what do you think is the least underutilized yet high ROI marketing channel in Web3? Um, it really depends on what company you're in, but I'd say for Safari, so Safari being like a Web3 B2B platform, uh, I think the, high, the most underappreciated channel is LinkedIn. Um, everyone will tell you that like nobody in Web3 is on LinkedIn. Um, they're all on Twitter, and that's kind of not true in my opinion. Everyone still scrolls through LinkedIn. Um, very few people post on LinkedIn, um, but they're all always kind of lurking, which creates this like great asymmetric opportunity, right? Everyone's posting on Twitter all the time. There's a ton of content, um, and a ton of people are there. LinkedIn, there's very little Web3 content, always has been, and so if you're in a personal Web3, much higher likelihood you're going to see, you know, my content about uh, Web3 on LinkedIn than somebody else's. So I think that's a, a key opportunity to sort of break through the noise um, that exists on crypto Twitter is via LinkedIn. Okay, great answer, and I agree. Next question, what do you think is um, the main lesson that Web2 growth leaders could take from Web3 community building strategies? And do you think it's even applicable to Web2 marketing? I think it's totally applicable, personally. I mean, fundamentally, what I'm talking about that we did with uh, the community that I was building of those developers doing mock interviews back in 2018 is very similar to, to Safari today uh, in terms of the function of that community. But I think what any Web2 growth leader should be listening to right now when it comes to community is that alpha, in my opinion, is fundamental to any community. And by that, I basically mean there needs to be some benefit to join one community over another community in a way that that community makes you as an individual joining it better. And so for us with Safari, the way that we think about our community is how can we accelerate the careers of our members? Um, and that's done through you know, one, meeting other people that are great in your industry. That's two, you know, learning Web3 growth tactics that you wouldn't be able to find anywhere else um, that comes from having those high quality members within the community. And then three, it's about using the best tools. And that's where our platform comes in. Versus I think that a lot of people, both in Web2 and in Web3, um, have made the mistake in terms of thinking about their community only in terms of like, what can our community do for us as a company when it comes to growth or monetization? And it's obviously important to think about those things, but you know, I believe that by thinking about how to help our community first and foremost, it'll help our brand in the end. And so you can think about community like a brand like a long-term brand strategy or like SEO or anything else. But if we're being honest, like there aren't too many short-term strategies that work for, for a long time. Uh, so I think that you have to approach community with, with that intent of knowing that this is a a long-term brand building strategy more than like a short-term like extracting from your community strategy. Absolutely agreed with that. So Justin, um, where can people find out more about Safari? Where can they go sign up for a demo of the platform? Yeah, you can go um, sign up on our website, safari.club uh, and that's Safari with a Y. So S-A-F-A-R-Y. Um, our platform is free and self-serve. So you can just go onto our website, explore the platform yourself, and if you're interested, you can integrate it all on your own. Um, and then in terms of 
where you can learn more about us. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Twitter at hashtag Safari Club. Um, that's a great place to explore our content and the other Web3 growth resources that we provide. Awesome. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you on here. It was great listening to you um, basically go deep into community-led growth. I think this is going to be the next product. You know, right now, product-led growth is the big buzzword. Community-led growth is going to be the next big buzzword. And I think you're absolutely at the forefront of that. So uh, thanks again for being on the podcast and for listeners. Uh, if you're on iTunes, if you're on Spotify, give us a like, give us a review, and I'll see you on the next podcast. Thanks. This is great.